Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Richard Pipes, professor of history at Harvard University, and Adam Ulam, director of the Russian Research Center and Gurney Professor of History and Political Science at Harvard University, discuss the events and conditions which led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. It's really amazing. Uh, if you look at the documents and sort of survey history, it's amazing, A, that the system has lasted those 74 years, and given its endurance, famines, revolutions, defeats, uh, I mean, defeating World War II on a scale, first few months, which was unparalleled. I mean, the Germans took, what, three million yes. prisoners in the first six months? Yeah. And then the system collapses by itself, so it seems, 89 to 92. Well, it's interesting, Berziaev, uh, whom I don't always admire, but he, he made a very good point. He said that there's absolutely no way, he wrote this in the 20s or 30s, that's before World War II, there's no way a system like that can be destroyed from the outside. It has to corrupt from within, and, it, and the collapse will come from within. Uh, uh, it has to rot, and it rotted. Well, anybody else would have said it was the other way around, that a system like that could only be destroyed in some uh, horrendous occasion like uh, nuclear war, uh, or even a more devastating defeat that the Germans dealt it in the first month of 40, uh, mm -hmm. the war in 41, uh, but it uh, disintegrates. Yeah. And uh, uh, whether it's corruption, which is one element, uh, but there's also sort of personal uh, factors which are very important. I mean, you have the psychology of Gorbachev and then personality of Yeltsin, uh, both uh, factors uh, which uh, you cannot sort of theorize on mm -hmm. the basis of, quote, social sciences, and yet which were uh, uh, vital in the destruction sure. of the system. Uh, I, I fully agree. I think if we weren't for... Uh Gorbachev and Yeltsin, I think, would have taken a very different course. Uh, uh, of social science does not allow for, for personal Personalities. Factors. Yeah. It, by its very nature, it uh, concentrates on big things and social forces, economic forces, and so on. But in fact, my view is, I'm reasonably certain of it, I think that when the archives are open, it will be confirmed, that, it, uh, that the reforms which Gorbachev introduced were based on a kind of misapprehension of the mood of the, of the Soviet people. He thought they basically are supportive of the regime. The regime is fundamentally all right, but it needs some changes. And he was basically very, very wrong. And this, I think, stemmed from the isolation of the government from its own people. Well, I don't know whether the assumptions of passivity of the people were so wrong. After all, it did remain passive, uh, with few honorable exceptions, the dissidents. Uh, after the already devastating revelations by Khrushchev about Stalin and the past, uh, but I think that uh, where he underestimated the Soviet people is that uh, he thought there was almost a sentimental attachment yeah, to the right. idea that's of what I mean. socialism. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, consequently, he made reforms halfway. And as somebody said, uh, those who make reforms halfway dig their own graves. Yeah. And uh, Gorbachev all the time thought that uh, he yeah. could have his cake and eat it too. Yeah. Uh, could have uh, semi-democracy in the Communist Party in the leading role, yeah. uh, could have uh, market socialism, uh, sort of raise the standard of living and yet not have yeah. private property in land. 
and all those assumptions which all by 87, 88 were wrong. Yeah, by 88. Yakovlev, Alexander Yakovlev, who is, as you know, one of his yeah. closest advisors, he said, I mean, in my presence, he gave a talk in, in Italy, he said that by 1988, we concluded, by we, I suppose he means Gorbachev himself and a few yeah. reformers, that communism is not reformable. And therefore, they began to really destroy it. Well, I wonder if he was quite uh, candid about it, because I thought that the fundamental thing which happened, which uh, spelled uh, death sentence for the regime, were the elections of 89. The elections of 89, which were conceived and legislated in 88. Uh, once you have elections, as you know yourself from the history, uh, what happens is people's expectations are aroused. And the national problem, which is, was the Achilles heel of the uh, Soviet Union, and may yet prove the Achilles heel of the present arrangement, uh, is, is immediately brought uh, into the focus. That happened in the elections to the Tsarist Duma, yeah. and it happened uh, much more drastically in '89. Suddenly, uh, out of uh, vacuum, it seems, you have Lithuanian nationalists, Latvian nationalists, uh, you have sort of the assertion on the part of the Russian part of the Soviet <laughs> Union. Uh, and all those things come out in the elections. And uh, this uh, wonderful scheme of uh, Gorbachev, they would have almost free elections, some non-communist, but the communist uh, majority, uh, I yeah. think that proves completely sure. unworkable. Well, it was an act of desperation, I think, because you ran into such resistance in the nomenclatura in the apparatus, that he felt he had to bring popular support, and he thought he was going to get it, and he didn't really get it. Um, I mean, the, the uh, elections which brought the present so-called parliament into being were very much manipulated, and the bulk of the people are all faithful communists, but uh, they did unleash all kinds of expectations, which they did not anticipate. I, I well, in say. situations like that, uh, yeah. who has majority is unimportant, is the yeah. question. Uh, small minority, yeah. uh, if it... Uh, uh, brings in uh, slogans and uh, uh, proposals which meet with a response in the people, a uh, small minority will uh, yeah. manage to do it. It's yeah. like uh, the last Tsarist Duma, which was a very pro-Tsarist, conservative Duma, but it proved to be the main instrument of uh, sure. the destruction of the prestige of sure. the Tsarist regime. Yeah. Sure. So the, this whole intricate idea, which in many ways was uh, sort of a Rube Goldberg device of uh, uh, Congress of the People's Deputies, which then elects uh, the legislature, uh, all those reserved seats for various social organizations, a Communist Party, yeah. which would destroy the majority for the Communist Party. All that proved completely ineffective in view of the fact that uh, people suddenly could uh, uh, speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, they didn't know much history, and I think they were, they were the victims of their own propaganda. They really thought that people believed fundamentally. People were unhappy, they knew that. But they thought that fundamentally people believed, and uh, you know, um, there I go back to what I said before: the isolation of government. It happens in any government, even democratic governments. It happens in our government too. You saw it with Bush. Uh, Bush was uh, 12 years in the White House, and I think he totally lost contact with what people wanted. And that makes it possible for somebody like Clinton to come along, and because he does mix with people all the time, to appeal to the voters in a way that Bush couldn't anymore. And imagine a communism nomenclature that's been there for 70 years, really cut off. Uh, I have really no idea. But if you go to, if you went to the Soviet Union, as I did numerous times, and speak Russian and you talk to people, 
I won't say dissatisfaction, but a kind of cynicism uh, about the regime. They disbelieve in everything it said. They believed absolutely nothing, even when the government was telling the truth. Uh, that I think they didn't weren't aware of. Well, uh, you have of course Glasnost, which Gorbachev originally uh, conceived not in the sense in which it's uh, immediately materialized, namely lack of censorship and full openness about the past. But uh, he conceived it more in the terms of the Tsarist times, when glasses was to mean simply that the people were to be informed what the government That's was right, doing. That's right, tends to do, yeah. In other words, to uh, do away with the conspiratorial form of government uh, by the Politburo in the last instance, mm -hmm. uh, which Soviets have. But then Glasnost becomes sort of the uh, sort of the opening, free speech opening for free speech. Yeah and uh, this horrendous histories about the past, about yeah. Stalin, Lenin, terror, and other things. And that uh, creates the yeah. mood of, uh, uh, not only of citizens, but of uh, passionate yeah. uh, hatred of the past. It supports the view, which many people had, and which I suspect Stalin shared, that the system is not reformable. We have to keep the system the way it is, yeah. because the moment you let some shafts of light in, it will collapse. Uh, and I think they didn't realize it. Of course, it took some time because the fear instilled in the people was so profound that in the 50s and the 60s, all but a tiny band of dissidents uh, continued to act yeah. as before. But eventually this wore off and a new generation came along and they weren't afraid. There's a big change in Russia was in the 70s and 80s. People were no longer afraid. Well, with like the death of Stalin, uh, you could have valid concept of civic courage, which couldn't exist under Stalin. Under Stalin, it was not heroism to be against the government, because it meant that your family, close friends, everybody would be destroyed. It's not heroic to throw yourself under a truck. Uh, with Khrushchev, uh, you have, to that degree, liberalization, that you have to do something or say something against the government, uh, for which you'll suffer and mass terror is discontinued. And I think that creates the possibility for people to be courageous yeah. opposing the regime. And I think we shouldn't forget the dissident movements, especially figures like Solzhenitsyn, uh, who sort of had a great deal uh, share in sort of showing that the emperor is not clothed, yes, or to translate it under Russian conditions, uh, that you don't have to be frantically fearful of the regime. Yeah that it's fallible can be removed. Yeah, that was a very important lesson. Yeah, but I, I, I used to go to Russia every couple of years, two or three years, except for one long period. And you could, each time you went back, you felt the fear evaporating. And once the fear evaporated, uh, there was nothing left but cynicism. Yeah. Of course, uh, I never thought that ideology was, uh, even beginning with Stalin, was very important in uh, keeping the system together or keeping the morale of the leaders. Uh, I remember a few years ago, a colleague of ours, name I won't mention, went to Russia, and since he was a man who is uh, very fervently ideological, from his youth was interested in anti-communist movement, in communism, uh, he lectured uh, at uh, various uh, Soviet universities and talked about Marx and Lenin. And after coming back, he was uh, very much surprised, he told me, that. Uh, the students, especially younger people, would titter whenever he <laughs> talked about Marx and Engels and Lenin, and he couldn't understand why. Well, uh, I think uh, by the 50s already, or 60s, after Stalin's death, I think the whole ideology became sort of a useless ballast. Yeah, just something you had to know, you know 
to uh, graduate from the university. Yeah. I remember standing in line in the cafeteria in one of the universities, and students behind me were getting ready for their examinations in Marxism and Leninism. They're just simply memorizing the answers for the purpose of passing, but yeah. uh, there was no serious discussion of anything whatsoever. Where I made a mistake, uh, I thought, of course, that ideology wasn't worth very much, but I thought that what uh, would keep the regime up psychologically would be Russian nationalism. Mm. And it was one of the most unexpected uh, things yeah. that was Russian nationalists somehow turned against the Soviet system, largely under the impetus of somebody like Yeltsin, who exploited it against the Soviet system. That was one great surprising thing for me about well, the Well, but it's thing. not new, because the Russian nationalists, both at home and abroad, always regarded the Soviet government as being an alien government imposed on Russia, uh, alien to Russia, alien to Russian traditions, and so on. Uh, but what surprised me was the absence, in general, of a kind of strong patriotism. Uh, well, that's exactly what it's, it, doesn't, it, it isn't there. Yeah. I had this very funny experience uh, last summer when I was riding a taxi in Moscow, and I was riding with somebody, we were discussing how vile the situation is in, in St. Petersburg, particularly as far as water was concerned. And I said, well, you have to blame uh, Peter the Great for founding a capital in no. such an outlandish place. And the taxi driver interjected, says, oh, he is more on his conscience than that. I said, what else is he on his conscience? Uh, and he said, well, he defeated the Swedes. I said, so? He says, well, if he hadn't defeated the Swedes, we'd be living under Sweden today, and we'd be much, much better off. Now, it's unthinkable Russians saying anything like that in the past. Well, it's, uh, you may remember Solzhenitsyn uh, mused on this theme in his no, I book. Don't. Yeah. yeah. Solzhenitsyn said maybe it would have been better if we had lost the Battle of Battle Poltava. <laughs> he didn't mean that they would be under Swedes. Of course, that would have yeah. been preposterous in view of the number of people, uh, population of the two countries. But he meant that they defeated, uh, uh, defeated the autocracy and maybe there would be Mm. A different system. But today, the, the, this self-deprecation goes so far that they, many Russians will hint to you that they would like, they welcome an American occupation. And I've heard one of them always say, well, you occupied Germany and Japan after the war, after they were defeated. Look how well off they how are well today. How well off they were. Yeah. Uh, why don't you do the same thing to us and bring order and pump money into our economy and so on? But that's without precedent in Russian history, because it was generally a very xenophobic country. Precisely. Uh, and I think that's the result of these years of uh, trauma which they experienced. And uh, I thought that Stalin, of course, uh, that Stalin practically abandoned ideology and sort of yeah. made Soviet patriotism, in other words, Russian nationalism, with some slight ideological mixture, the basis on which the whole yeah business system was going. Yeah. And the absence of it was surprising. Yeah. But of course, now we see that uh, uh, there is an element which uh, in population, we don't know how many, uh, somewhat nostalgic for the, quote, greatness of the Soviet Union and for the greatness of the Russian people who were, in effect, masters yeah, of the Soviet Union. Well, any country that has given up an empire, and this applied also after the immediate post-war years to France and to England goes through this rather traumatic experience. You know, they were a great power and become small England, small France. But um, there, there is another element. It was a society that for so long has been directed, told where it's going, that uh, they have a sense of disorientation. Um, we don't have this problem in our society because nobody tells us. We are basically autonomous creatures. We, we set our own agenda. 
Um, but I, I talked recently uh, to somebody in Moscow, and I said, how are things? And the, the lady said, well, very bad. And I said, what, food? No, 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 it's not food. She says, we're disoriented. We don't know why we live. Now, that's the effect of a society that for 70 years was told what it was living for. It has no objective, no goal. I think a lot of people suffer because of that. I think, but uh, also, the collapse of the system, of course, cannot be really referred solely to what the people feel. Uh, but I think that uh, the loss of the nerve by the ruling class, uh, the last instance, Gorbachev, his circle, mm -hmm. the Politburo, mm -hmm. that was responsible for it. Uh, he didn't have to start those reforms. Yeah. Uh, he could have economically followed sure. more liberal path. After all, China has capitalist economy sure. and a strong, oppressive and repressive communist government. Sure. I mean, he could have done the same thing. Yeah. But for some reason, whether it was advice of people like Alexander Yakovlev and others who yeah. knew something about the West, uh, he decided differently. Uh, I think uh, perhaps my, it's my own uh, view, because I concentrated so much on uh, foreign policy as well as internal uh, domestic politics, that the great disillusionment came with the realization uh, that the spread of communism was not necessarily to the benefit of uh, Russia or the Soviet Union. Uh, you had China, which became almost enemy number one. A Tito, uh, you uh, yeah. Titoism, well, that was small scale, yeah. but then you have huge China. And probably the, for some time they've been asking themselves, what for? Now, that would have explained only uh, sort of the international uh, policy of Gorbachev, namely the town with the West, uh, going much further than the town. But I think it also uh, contributed to their feeling, well, maybe internally we also have to shed some of yeah. the old system. Yeah, I, I fully expected in the early 80s, that uh, when I was in Washington, that there would be major reforms. But I was convinced they will follow the Chinese pattern. That is, reforms in the economy, liberalization of the economy, and basically following the Pinochet model uh, in Chile. That is, a autocratic political government and considerable liberty in, in the field of uh, economics. And uh, I think that's what they intended to do to begin yeah. with. And they run into such resistance of these very powerful elements in the economy, the, what they call yeah. the military-industrial complex, that they decided they can do it. So then they began to switch yeah. to other fields of endeavor and to try to uh, gather popular support by relaxing censorship and by holding these elections. And then the whole thing crumbled. Whole thing. Well, it's an uh, open question now, purely academic, whether they could have followed this Chinese example after all. China is still a largely peasant country, 80% yeah. peasant. Uh, in Russia, I think at the time it was what, 75% probably Se rural? 70% uh, urban. 70, 70, in, in Russia, the Russian urban. public, I think, is 74% urban. But urban. And uh, they couldn't just uh, do reforms the way the Chinese did, which in China's case meant simply introduction of a dose of common sense yeah. and abandoning the policy of collectivization. Yeah. And, and communes in the countryside, that was the main thing, and then waiting for private enterprise. They would have had immediately to start uh, privatizing huge enterprises and other things, something which up to now they've still been unable well, to do. Well, they could have done what they are doing, trying to do now, uh, and at a time when the party was still very powerful, uh, that is to privatize agriculture. And not the big enterprises, but agriculture, they could have, yeah. and they didn't. Well, that was a particular fault, I think, of Gorbachev, as late as 19... 91, he would be saying, I was, I'm a socialist and I'll die a socialist. He means communist, really. Uh, 
well, yeah, no, he said socialist. Social, yeah. He said socialist. And he kept saying, no, I will never agree that land can be bought yeah, and sold. Yeah. You can rent it, uh, lease it for 100 years, but not sold. It's simply a kind of sort of uh, ideological superstition yeah. which persists despite uh, all yeah. other things, which would point... But it's also deeply ingrained in Russian culture, because, as you know, Russian peasants deeply believe that land must not be bought and sold. So uh, it, it goes beyond communist theory. But, uh, the other problem there was, of course, in China, you've had this collectivization for about 35, 40 years. Uh, in Russia, you've had it for about 60 years, 60. over 60 years. And the question is, and still an open question, whether there's enough uh, in the peasant uh, group to constitute sort of farmers yeah, in the Western European or American sense of the word. Yeah, because they're a very high proportion of... Uh, all the rural people. population consists of old people, women, and children. And the able-bodied men, the general pattern is that when a young Russian from the village goes into the army, when he is discharged, he goes into the city, he does not return home no. to the village. So that, uh, but still, if they, had, if they had, for example, started cutting on defense budget, which was absurdly high, uh, they, they, they could have and put the money into the infrastructure in the village. One of the reasons people like to leave villages is because there are no amenities there, basically. Yeah. It's extremely primitive. Russian cities are primitive, but by comparison, they are Western compared to the villages. They could have done it, but um, here again, the kind of dogmatic blindness comes in. They believe in industry, they believe in steel, they believe in all these things, and not in agriculture. Well, it still persists. I just saw the new, heard the new prime minister saying that we have to produce steel, steel. and things like that. It's still a, to this, them, uh, a symbol of, 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 of progress. You produce things with steel, but uh, it's really very anachronistic yeah. thinking. I remember when I was in Russia in 57, I was on a plane, and because I was a foreigner, they put me in the front row, which is where all the important people sat. And I sat next to a member of the Supreme Soviet. This was in 57. And we began and got in discussion. And finally he said, well, he says, how much steel do you produce in the United States? I think it was 70 or 80 million, I said. He said, well, we produce 120. And that to him was the final, ultimate argument that they are more advanced. In the meantime, we're developing computers uh, and everything else of which they knew nothing. Nothing, yeah. yeah. Well, I think the, this uh, question of the collapse of the system and stares the personal element. Here is a man like Yeltsin uh, who gets disgraced by Gorbachev, party leader, almost in the old Stalinist fashion, mm -hmm. and who against all the rules and precedents so suddenly begins to play a role in yeah. politics again. Yeah. And I think it's Yeltsin who is very largely responsible, A, sure. for uh, uh, the solution of the empire, and B, for, of course, uh, his days of glory in August 91, yeah. for uh, frustrating uh, a right-wing coup. Even though I don't believe personally that even if the coup had succeeded in Moscow, they'd arrested Yeltsin and so on, they could have yeah. in the longer run restored the old I system. I agree, they could not. They could not have ruled that. But I mean, he is an extraordinary phenomenon because I, I think he's really gotten rid of both communist ideology and communist psychology totally. He's, he's not only a non-communist, he's an anti-communist. Anti-communist. He became anti-communist yeah. through his personal experience. It's extraordinary uh, because so much, so many of the people he has to work with still are in many ways not only communists, but even 
as one of them told me, a very liberal man told me, deep in our hearts, we all have a bit of Stalin in us. No. I don't think he does. I mean, he's a bit of authoritarian, but uh, that's not uh, communist or Stalinist. Uh, so almost anything that's happening is unprecedented uh, today. I mean, the struggle for, for now between the executive and legislative, which is common in, in Western democracies, democracies. Yeah. there is without precedent. Really. Uh, they're working out uh, methods of running a parliamentary democracy. And uh, I'm not dismayed by the fact that there's this struggle because they have to work it out. I'm not dismayed, but uh, disturbed by the fact that there doesn't seem to be any clear-cut authority in the country. Yeah. You have the personal prestige of uh, Yeltsin, but even Yeltsin, in view of the uh, deepening economic uh, crisis, uh, is not really as popular as he was here no, or 72 not. years ago. And I think, as you said, that uh, disenchantment of politics in general and the situation in which an authoritarian solution might indeed be tempting uh, if the economy is to be... Improved. Yeah, but you have to have an authoritarian personality. And uh, as far as I can tell, right now, Yeltsin is the only player. Uh, I could see him gradually acquiring more power and becoming more and more of a, I won't say dictator, but an authoritarian figure. There's no one else there. I mean, Hasbuatov and Rutskoy, these people have no popular following at all. And you have to have, uh, if you don't have a dictatorship, you have to have a dictator. Um, so, uh, well, you can I, don't think the, I don't think the bureaucracy is going to allow him to become a dictator because they don't like him and his policy. Well, I don't know if you need a dictator. You had, after Stalin's death, a period of, what, uh, 35 years yeah. when you had collective dictatorship yeah. and oligarchy in which 12, usually quite elderly people, uh, ruled over well, the Well, that's country. true, but you had a vast Communist Party apparatus which is no longer there. And there's no Communist Party apparatus. At that time, yes, 12 people could give orders and they carried out. Today, it doesn't exist. So you have to have, essentially, a populist leader who appeals to the masses. I just don't see him. There's no one around. Uh, so the prospects for this sort of thing are, are rather dim. I think they're going to be muddling through for years to come, uh, lurching from crisis to crisis to crisis. The main crisis, in my mind, is not economic, but it's political. They have to work Of course it's political. Uh, the economy reflects the fact that there is no authority. Uh, it reflects the fact that uh, uh, the whole dissolution of the union was not done in a clean-cut way. So that, uh, just to mention one element of the economic difficulty, inflation, it proceeds from the fact that uh, other republics can draw upon the Russian central bank and keep the ruble, uh, the ruble flow liquidity yeah. increasing. Uh, so that, uh, I mean, sort of something which will continue. Uh, some people have speculated about the possibility of restoring the union, and I don't believe it's possible. No, it's I think it would be possible if you didn't have Ukraine. You're absolutely right, yeah. If you had if Ukraine... Well, and the Baltic countries. They cannot reunite the Baltic countries. Baltic countries are gone. Uh, but they could get Central Asia and maybe even the Caucasus, but I, uh, well, Georgia would resist. But uh, Ukraine is absolutely adamant uh, about not rejoining it. And without Ukraine, there is no union. No union. Yeah. They have sort of a poor backwater, which really Central Asia is, extremely dependent on them. And it's not economically a very uh, happy solution. Well, I mean, one question which uh, people unfairly accuse, let's say, our former leader, President Bush, is that he didn't foresee it. Well, very few people foresaw the, uh, the, dissolution, the, the, the imminence of the yeah. dissolution No, but he, was, he, he has many more uh, faults uh, on his conscience. I mean, 
what was in August of last year, 1991, he went to Kiev. July, I think. It was July. Delivered a speech to the Ukrainians and yes. uh, to, to, to be happy in the Soviet Union. I mean, that was just bad advice. Unnecessary. Uh, and uh, there's also some evidence that when the putsch occurred in the early hours, he was not unhappy about it. Uh, he didn't mind having a authoritarian regime restored in the Soviet yeah. Union. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, uh, I would have to well, have proof. Well, the proof is that he it took him several hours to come out and condemn it. Well, Mitterrand evidently was ready to congratulate him. Well, exactly. Like but uh, the putsch itself was ridiculous. I think that for many years we were taught about the devilish cleverness of the KGB or secret police. And this putsch was uh, something which could have been done by a group of students at Harvard. Yeah, to compound it, uh, I'm told that uh, uh, when they appeared, those seven stony-faced people appeared, the Committee for Emergency, uh, so-called, six of them were completely drunk. Yes, correct. So uh, <laughs> this is a sort of a... Uh, there we go back to the human element yeah, in politics. human element, and you have this sort of confirmation of Hegel's, that's what begins as a tragedy and as a comedy. comedy. I mean, it was really comic. It was comic. It absolutely was. This. And then a couple of them committing suicide afterwards. And, uh, so now, now they're supposed to be tried. I don't know. Well, the trial itself throws light on how immature uh, the new Russian uh, Republic Federation still is. Uh, they obviously have been great trouble in arranging the trial. Uh, it's been more than a year, and a couple of, uh, by now, I think practically all of the main conspirators uh, have been released. I remember when they released the first one, a reason for his parole, so to speak, was that uh, uh, he had finished reading the act of indictment. <laughs> so the speed in the reading was as <laughs> essential in uh, whether you are uh, kept in jail or not. Uh, furthermore, I think that the trial may prove very embarrassing to several oh, people in the regime, possibly to Gorbachev himself. Certainly. There is continued uh, sort of uh, continued rumors that uh, uh, he himself was preparing I something think. similar. And, he uh, certainly was informed. informed I, yeah. I think that's why they're delaying. It's too embarrassing. Well, altogether, I think it's uh, an amazing drama in history. And I think uh, it will continue. And I, the only hope is that uh, what is a drama, has been a drama, will not turn into a tragedy. And uh, the hitherto very largely peaceful evolution and evolution might turn into something much worse. Acceptable. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.